Hi, I'm Yusuf Hassan. And I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to this, the final episode of Undercurrents in 2020. Well, hello and welcome back to Undercurrents. Thanks for joining us as ever. And thanks for sticking with us throughout this crazy year, which is now coming towards its end. Christmas is looming in what form we don't really know as the pandemic is still surging across the UK. But we hope that wherever you are, you're able to get together with some family this Christmas. And we have a really exciting final episode for you today. It's something a bit different. It's actually a bit of a teaser for a new podcast series that is launching in 2021 at Chatham House. And I'm joined to discuss this by my colleague and friend of the podcast, Yusuf Hassan. Yusuf, how are you doing? Well, I'm well, Ben. Actually, I'm as well as I can be at the end of what you said as a crazy long year, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For those of our listeners who have not heard you on the podcast before, could you maybe tell us a bit about your role at Chatham House? Of course I can. My name is Yusuf Hassan. I'm the Parliamentary Media and Outreach Officer at the Africa Programme, which is a research department at Chatham House. The Africa Programme, for those of you that don't know, develops policy-orientated research on issues affecting individual states of Africa, their international relations, and actually the continent as a whole and trends within it. And since our establishment as a programme in 2002, the Africa Programme has been a world-leading centre for independent policy research and debate on Africa's politics and socio-economic change. Lovely stuff. Having honed your talents this year on Undercurrents, I think you contributed to three different episodes, which I would recommend listeners check out now back in this feed, wherever you're listening to us. After honing those talents, you are launching your own podcast, Going It Alone, Yusuf. Could you maybe tell us a bit about that? So this podcast is actually all about bringing together the best possible minds on Africa, thought leaders, to discuss key issues, to discuss problems and to discuss solutions to the very issues the continent faces, looking at trends moving forward and also looking at things that can be learned from the past, from Africa's engagement with itself and actually with the wider world. This podcast, we hope, will provide really interesting insights and we hope to discuss issues from geopolitics to debt relief to peace and security to elections to things like even tech in Africa and the part that it plays in Africa's development. So the hope is for it to be wide ranging, but also very, very interesting and engaging for your listeners. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I hope listeners that if you enjoy all of those things, you'll you'll still listen to Undercurrents. But I, I would heartily recommend that you check this podcast out when it launches in January. And to give us a flavour of the sorts of topics you'll be covering, Today, we've got a really interesting interview for you. Yusuf, who did we speak to? We spoke to this Dr. Christopher Famonio, who is currently the Senior Associate and Regional Director for Central and West Africa at the National Democratic Institute, whose aim is to increase the effectiveness of democratic institutions. I think it was such a pleasure to speak to Dr. Christopher, in particular because I feel when it comes to discussions with experts, We're often discussing things with people who may not necessarily be on the ground as much as they'd like to be Mm. and may not necessarily be able to give you practical experience. But the discussion with Christopher will really show you how much and how, how far his knowledge on African democracy goes and his insights in how we can improve democracy, protect democracy and what the future of democracy in Africa looks like. Lovely stuff. Well, let's have a listen. Today, I'm very lucky to be joined by Dr. Christopher Fumonio, who is currently the Senior Associate and Regional Director for Central and West Africa at the National Democratic Institute based in Washington, D.C. He has organized and advised international election observer missions to Benin, Cameroon, Central African Republic, Cote d'Ivoire, Ethiopia, Ghana, Liberia, Madagascar, Mali, Nigeria, and Sierra Leone. He has also designed and supervised country-specific democratic support programs with civic organizations, political parties, and legislative bodies in over 17 countries in sub-Saharan Africa. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you uh, this afternoon. Dr. Christopher, for our listeners that are unaware, what role does NDI play in trying to further democracy across the globe, but in particular in sub-Saharan Africa? Well, NDI, the National Democratic Institute, is a non-profit organization that was uh, created in the mid-80s 
to help support and strengthen democracy worldwide. We do have programs in five continents, in, in fact, almost all continents except uh, North America. We're based in Washington, D.C., but our programs are done overseas, working side by side with political parties, civil society organizations, pro-democracy advocates, elected officials to strengthen democracy and provide space for citizen engagement and democratic governance. In some of the previous presentations that I've been lucky to hear, one of the things that you've said that's really taken me aback is the description of the constant struggle that you make between the two currents fighting for the soul of democracy in Africa, authoritarian opportunism and democratic resilience. As someone of who, of course, works in this area and has just returned from an electoral mission, what are the trajectories of these two in the current context we find ourselves in? Indeed, you're so right to have picked up on that. Almost on a, on a daily basis in many African countries across the continent, we see this struggle between people, Africans who aspire to democracy, who aspire to be governed differently, and others who would rather take the continent back to the one-party days or to the days of military rule. And that explains why in the past three decades, we've seen quite some transitions on the continent, which were on a positive trajectory, but then we've also seen some backsliding, which is taking some of the African countries back. And this particular year, you would also note that studies, uh, various opinion polls have been done by credible organizations such as Afrobarometer, that in the past two decades have measured public opinion across Africa. And what strikes me in the research done by Afrobarometer is that constantly, in almost every yearly report, it shows that about 70% of Africans aspire to democracy. They believe democracy is the best form of government, but at the same time, a very low percentage of Africans are satisfied with the way in which their countries are governed. So that, for me, is an indicator that that constant struggle for the soul of Africa remains, and that that's something that needs to be integrated in how we approach democracy strengthening across the continent. 2020 has been a very difficult year uh, for a combination of reasons. And in some ways, I would say the pendulum has been swinging backwards through 2020. But my hope going forward is that given the demographics on the continent, given that of Africa's 1.4 billion people, 75% are 35 years and younger, and that this young generation is the segment of society that's most committed to democracy and democratic governance, that the future remains bright, despite the backsliding that we've seen in recent years. That's fantastic. I've also been very, very interested, of course, in hearing your immediate perspective on how COVID-19 has affected democracy on the continent. In reality, of course, it'd be amiss if we didn't mention it. COVID-19 seems to have impacted upon every single sector of our lives. And I'm really, really interested to hear your perspective and your immediate thoughts on, on its effects on, on elections on the continent. Definitely, because talking about 2020, I think one of the elements that is really weighed in the balance has been the impact of COVID-19 on political processes and electoral processes, to be more specific. That we've seen that in some countries such as Burundi and Tanzania and even Mali earlier on this year, the governments of the day pushed through with elections despite the concerns about COVID-19 spreader events and obtained the outcomes that they had wanted to obtain. But there was a sense also that because of the restrictions around social distancing, avoiding public gatherings, that a lot of the other actors that usually engage in the electoral process were unable to do so because of the restrictions around COVID-19. At the same time, we've seen in other countries, such as Ethiopia, where the whole question of elections has become controversial because the government postponed the electoral process for reasons of COVID-19, but in the minds of other actors in Ethiopia, it's created some doubt as to the government's commitment to have those elections conducted. So I think that as long as we're still grappling with this pandemic of COVID-19, 
it's going to be very difficult to properly manage political spaces such that all of the actors, civil society, opposition parties, political parties at large, the media and pro-democracy advocates have the opportunity to engage with other actors to be able to make sure that the gains that have been realized in recent years can be sustained and improved upon or consolidated. I think it's really interesting you mentioned the super spreader element of campaigning. Would you be able to speak towards how important these rallies or these these larger gatherings are in the fabric of African democracy? As you are well aware, most of our democracies on the continent are still nascent and fragile. And a substantial part of the population lives in urban centers and have access to other platforms of communication, such as electronic media or internet or email and other platforms of conversations. But when you start leaving the cities and going out into the rural areas, Africans still believe in voice, in visuals, in seeing their candidates and rubbing minds with their candidates very directly and hearing from them very directly. And so rallies remain the medium of choice for candidates to engage with their electorates. And so when you have a situation such as COVID-19, that imposes restrictions on how many people can gather in a public gathering or how many people can be in a closed space, then invariably it's going to be very difficult for the candidates who don't have other means of communication to be able to engage with citizens. And so what we've seen is that in the countries that have had elections through 2020, as the world and the continent were dealing with COVID-19, most of the ruling parties or candidates from the ruling parties or that are already in government have been able to use resources at their disposal to their advantage compared to opposition candidates who don't have those additional platforms, who have limited access to state-run media, and who therefore are handicapped in their ability to be able to communicate with voters and to get voters' views integrated into their policy formulation. We also have to keep in mind that besides just issues of political participation and citizen engagement, COVID-19 also has a financial impact in the sense that resources which traditionally would go towards governance-related issues, elections, printing of ballots and ordering of indelible ink and all of the logistics that go with running good elections, that countries have had to struggle as they allocate more resources to curbing the impact of COVID-19 and shoring up the health services rather than put those resources into democracy support and democracy strengthening. And my fear going forward, or my hope, is that as we all worry about the second wave of COVID-19, that African countries are spared of the huge negative impacts that this could have on their health systems, but also on public resource management and allocation across the continent. I think hope is the imperative word when we're speaking about topics like this. And one of the positive stories of this year was, of course, events that took place in Malawi, which saw the 2019 Malawi presidential election overturned after a panel of five high court judges identified widespread and systemic irregularities in the polls and actually called for fresh elections. This saw them awarded, uh, as you will well know, with the 2020 Chatham House Prize in recognition of their courage and independence in defense of democracy. But Christopher, what do you feel the significance of the judges' ruling is for strengthening democracy in Africa? The beauty of the story of Malawi is that in that single story, you can see elements of the best that has happened with regards to democratic governance across the continent. First, that smaller countries also have the possibility of making history and having impact. Second, that the theoricians or the developmental theorists who have said in the past that you need a certain level of economic development before you become democratic or that you can have development without democracy were also proven wrong because Malawi is not necessarily a very wealthy country, but the attachment of the people of Malawi to democracy is what has carried them through. And the courage that these judges had to assert the independence of the judiciary reinforces the message that in democracies, 
the three main branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and the judiciary, should be viewed as co-equal and independent branches of government in order to exercise the checks and balances that make democracy function and make democracy worthwhile. And so for the judiciary to have stepped forward based on the complaints and evidence gathered by political parties and civil society organizations and had the courage to apply the rule of law also underscored the importance of other pillars of democracy that include the vitality of political parties, political pluralism, the effectiveness of civil society organizations and advocacy, the rule of law and the courage of judges to be able to read the law and interpret the law as it is, and the outcome to the credit of all Malawian political contestants was that the outcome of the court was accepted and appreciated by the entire political class of Malawi, which then went into new elections that proved to be more transparent and more credible than the previous ones that had been contested. So it's a very happy story coming out of Malawi. And that's the beauty of working on Africa because it's such a diverse continent. And sometimes when you're about to start lamenting about trends that are going in the negative direction, you have a beautiful story pop up from a country like Malawi that gives you hope that there's so much good that can come out of the continent. It's important, I think, you mentioned civil society because, of course, many will will recognise their role, and we do, that they played a key factor in creating and actually sustaining the environment that allowed the judges to make their decision because of the pressure that they exerted and by ensuring that the disputed elections that are taking place a year before were not accepted by the communities themselves and by the population themselves. The important role of civil society and being able to uphold democratic principles and the rule of law in the African democratic context is often forgotten. I'd love for you to be able to you know, provide us with your perspective on that. And what challenges do civil society actually face in the African democratic context? You're so right, because we've seen an evolution of the acceptance, the acknowledgement by political actors of the crucial role that civil society has to play. And civil society has had to fight for this space and in a number of countries has acquired that space through its credibility, well had earned credibility in the way in which it's been able to capture the voices of citizens and put that in the public space and impose or push political actors to integrate these voices into the formulation of policy. We have also seen how civil society has been able to organize itself across the continent to monitor elections with citizen observers who deploy in their thousands around national elections to be able to monitor elections across the country. And in many ways, these citizen-driven groups led by civil society organizations have become more effective in monitoring elections in Africa than some of the internationals who pop in in small numbers around election day and issue statements and then leave the country. And so civil society has become an incubator of opinion leaders, of committed Democrats, of pro-democracy advocates. And because it's for the most part constituted of the younger generation in its diversity, young men and women who are committed to democratic processes, that too is an assurance for all of us that as this generation begins to grow and take on leadership across the continent, that they will be imbibed with the same spirit that's motivating them to work on elections, to work on human rights issues, to work on governance and accountability issues, and to help foster good governance and democracy across the continent. You would see that in the countries in which civil society has the space to function, in which civil society is very active and vocal and influential, that those countries tend to do better than in the countries where civil society does not have the space to speak up or to speak out in favor of democracy and good governance. And I think you're completely right that civil society plays such an important role. Another important role player and actor in a domestic and international sense is the media itself. What role do you believe the media plays in safeguarding democracy and ensuring that the rule of law is followed? The media's role is really essential. And I think it's for good reason that in a number of countries, the media is referred to as the fourth estate. 
That is to say, you have the three constitutional powers, the executive, the legislative, and the judiciary, but then you have the fourth quote-unquote power, which is viewed as the fourth estate, or the media, which is encapsulated in the media, and its ability to serve as an arbiter, a truth-teller that shines the spotlight on what's going well, but also what needs to be improved upon. And I think that we have seen in the past two, three decades a burgeoning of independent media outlets across Africa that are not state-owned and not run by the state or not run by the bureaucrats that are in power at the time, but that are independent and that help to give voice to the voiceless, I would say in many regards, but also voice to alternative viewpoints in terms of how countries and societies should be governed. In fact, one of the good things that we're now seeing with regards to elections across the continent is this combination of effort between civil society and citizen observers and media outlets. That in a number of African countries, we see increasingly that civil society organizations and civic citizen observers team up with media outlets. And by the close of the polling day, they begin to announce the elections recorded in various polling sites. And we have seen that by doing so, they've enhanced transparency in the tabulation and compilation of election results. They've also guaranteed that no one is able to tinker with election results between the time that they're counted at the polling site and the time that they're announced at the headquarters of the election management body in the national capital. So this symbiosis, these synergies that are being built by various actors in the democracy space would be instrumental in consolidating that space and safeguarding that space so that democracy can continue to thrive. I completely agree with you. And I think one of the major themes for our podcast is African agency. And I feel the spotlight provided to these domestic actors who are providing African solutions for African problems is exactly the narrative that's incredibly important that we take on and actually are able to show the international community itself the important role that that these individuals and these bodies are playing. And actually, furthering on from that point, how important are these domestic institutions and and individual agencies in in upholding this said democracy and, and, and actually upholding these democratic principles that we believe are so, so important? They are crucial. The domestic actors are crucial because, first of all, it is their democracy. It's the democracy in their countries. It's them creating space in which they can live and feel that their well-being is being impacted upon positively by those that govern. It's they that want to create the space in which their voices can be heard and taken into consideration. So it is their democracy. And thankfully, it is they that put their lives on the line on a daily basis, especially in the countries where political space has been shrinking. It is these domestic actors that put their lives on the line And it's but appropriate that they take full ownership of their democracy so that when organizations like the National Democratic Institute or the International Republican Institute or Open Society and other nonprofit organizations that come in to help, that they should come in as partners and play a supporting role rather than to be in the forefront as if that democracy was theirs to share with the Africans. So the domestic actors are extremely important, and I'm really gratified, going back to your example from Malawi, that we've also seen, you know, in Kenya, where a court also had the courage to ask that the presidential elections be rerun, that increasingly these domestic actors are standing up and doing the right things for their countries and for their people. We're also seeing a number of sub-regional organizations, although some are more effective than others, But these sub-regional organizations are getting to be more outspoken in terms of how the democratic space is safeguarded in the countries in their respective sub-regions. And I think that's something, a viable lever of influence that we have on the African continent that should be activated as often as possible to make sure that issues that arise that could undercut or undermine democratic governance are quickly addressed by the domestic actors 
And if they are not able to address them by the sub-regional actors who are also very cognizant and very familiar with the nature of the challenges that arise and the best solutions that could be applied to them. I'm in complete agreement with you there. And I feel that it is this narrative that it's so important that discussions like this are about. Following on from that, of course, we've mentioned the importance of, of domestic actors and, and domestic leaders. Where do you feel the international community fits into that? As you've mentioned, it's a discussion around partnerships and not necessarily a monopoly of democratic principles that are brought in from externals. What do you feel the important role is of the international community in being able to support and to partner in this topic? There has to be a recognition that the world is now a global village, that no country on the surface of the earth can live and thrive in isolation. So as part of this global village, it's important that the rest of the world also show solidarity with Democrats across Africa as a reminder that we all committed to the same principles, that the basic universal principles that we all adhere to. And so the international community brings that to the table anytime that they're in partnership with the domestic actors. At the same time, there's also a recognition that increasingly the African story has to be told. And sometimes the domestic actors don't have as much access as the internationals do have to be able to retell the story of the African success. And so whether you're dealing with elections or dealing with capacity building for legislators or elected officials, it's a question of sharing those experiences so that people can draw best practices from cases that have worked on other continents. They can draw lessons from there and they can internalize. They can then adapt those practices to their specific country context to make sure that they can leapfrog through the challenges that other countries have faced in the past. And I think this is where the internationals play a very constructive role, but it has to be seen as a role of genuine partnership where we're sharing lessons learned and best practices and providing a measure of solidarity with people who are putting their lives on a daily basis on the line to make sure that democracy and democratic governance can thrive in their respective countries. Once again, I'm in complete agreement with you there. Personally, the best description I've come across over the years with regards to elections and, and how to describe them is not for them to be seen as an event, but as a process. And this process requires close monitoring and support prior and, of course, after the event of the vote itself. Are you able to speak to this? And, and where do you feel, as someone who has been so instrumental in, in, in being able to bring elements of democratic principles into, into the continent, what do you see as this process effectively being put across? You know, I'm happy to report that across Africa and even internationally, the language that has been adopted is the electoral cycle approach to elections rather than the election event. Electoral cycle in the sense that planning for democracy support, for election preparations is done before the elections during the elections and after the elections, so that even in between elections, there's still things that are being done, technical assistance that is being provided to prepare for the next elections. So increasingly, people are viewing elections as a process. And there again, this is one area where the methodology of viewing elections as a process requires for its effectiveness that the domestic actors who are actually in the country and in their numbers be part of that process through that entire cycle. We've also seen that with regards to international observation, there is now a methodology that has been adopted through the Declaration of Principles that was adopted in New York in 2007 that laid out that even international organizations that monitor elections have to treat elections as a process another one-day event. And that's why you now see that credible organizations, before showing up on election day, send pre-election missions to various countries, provide reports and recommendations to the stakeholders in the country, have long-term observers who are in the country 
months before election day, and then a high-level election day observation mission. And in most cases, also make recommendations for the post-election period, during which they open up channels for constant engagement in that post-election period. And this is the best way to see elections, because elections do not a democracy make, but they are an important pillar in the democratic process. And elections, by their very nature, are able to provide an opportunity to test the vitality of the other pillars of democratic governance. We talked about rule of law, how the courts function, how they interpret the law with regards to candidacies. And we talked about the law itself, how the electoral law is enacted by parliaments. You can talk about the professionalism of security services, whether they're able to create spaces for all candidates to campaign in all parts of the country freely. You talk about the engagement of citizens, whether domestic groups are monitoring the process and reporting on the process, uh, whether the media is also active in reporting on the electoral process. So elections are very unique by their nature. And if countries adopt this principle of looking at elections as a cycle and not just as a one-day event, they would be able to provide opportunities for all of the other actors in society to make their contributions to the consolidation of democracy and good governance. I think that's incredibly poignant, the point that you make there, in the sense that, especially when we're referring to post-election periods in many countries where we've seen extended recounts or the elections themselves being disputed for their validity, these can create very dangerous environments. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on what role international and domestic actors can play in minimizing the tensions that can take place during these periods. A lot of effort has to be done to normalize elections across Africa to get our people and our countries to accept the fact that elections are a normal part of the governance process and that elections should not be filled with drama and tragedy and violence. They should be celebrated. There should be an opportunity for elected officials to go back to their constituents and seek a renewal of their contracts if they've done well or be voted out and replaced by other people who may have better policy plans or or promises, there should be a a cause for celebration. And so when you go into the post-election period, it's always been important that the international community, as well as the other stakeholders in the country themselves, uh, not pack and leave after election day. Because some of the time, when people just pack and leave after election day and either say the elections went well and there's nothing to see here, or the elections went so badly that we're turning our backs to this country, then even worse things happen. But if the domestic actors stay engaged and the international community stays engaged to monitor and report on the post-election environment, then it minimizes the possibility that violence could arise or emerge in that post-election period, or that courts would feel intimidated from being able to make the right call as they decide or engage in election-related litigation. And to continue on with the topic of the post-election period, I feel one area where there is much criticism is the lack of constitutional provision for opposition in many countries. And the lack of this provision leads to elections becoming winner-takes-all scenarios. And therefore, tensions will, of course, rise around that because if your candidate or if your party loses there is a possibility that your grouping or your your individuals or even your the area that you live in may be defunded or deprioritized or not seen as particularly important by the winner of the election. Therefore, I'd, l- I'd love to hear your position on what constitutional provisions should be made. How can opposition groups themselves operate effectively, especially in contexts where they may be marginalized? There's a lot to say on the subject matter because a lot still needs to be done to provide equitable space for all actors, be they opposition parties or ruling parties or new parties or smaller parties, to be able to have voice and also have their share of space in terms of political engagement. Unfortunately, we still have in a lot of our countries electoral systems that enhance the winner-take-all mentality. For example, 
if you have single member constituencies, which is what many countries have adopted instead of proportional representation, you would find that the countries that have proportional representation provide more openings for every voice to be heard or to be represented than the countries that have single member constituencies. And we've seen in some countries where a party has lost an election but had 40% of the votes cast, but ended up with no representation in the parliament, even though in totality it had 40% of the votes cast. Some redress must be found for those kinds of systems so that people get a sense that you don't participate in the process and you come out with such a high score but have nothing because the electoral system is screwed against the smaller political parties. We also have to deal with the issue of acknowledging that opposition parties play a constructive role in the checks and balances that we mentioned at the beginning of our conversation. And that if there's recognition in the constitution or in the charter, some countries have adopted charters for political opposition. Some countries have gone as far as having the chief opposition leader in parliament or within political parties with a recognized role in the order of protocol of the country that's what gives recognition to people that not everybody has to lump back into the ruling party to go back to the one party days, but you can be in opposition, you can have constructive ideas, and those ideas will be acknowledged and valued because of the contribution that you make to the building of democracy within the nation state. The third area also has to do with the whole question of constitutionalism and 10 limits that provide avenues for a regular alternation and a regular renewal of political leadership. And that's what makes the competition for office exciting and interesting. But if you have one leader who wins one election and then makes sure that they stay leader for life and they're still in office in 25, 30 years, then that leader ends up sucking up all the oxygen and all the meaning that you have around elections. Then elections become nothing but an opportunity to rubber stamp that leader returning to office. And then they do everything to skew up the electoral rules and the manner in which the elections are conducted so they can maintain themselves in power. And that leads to further disaffection within the population and an imbalance in the way in which democracy is sustained over the long haul. So there is still work to be done, which for me underscores the fact that you can't really have democracy without Democrats, that the leaders have to be committed to democracy just as the citizens are. And that unfortunately, that train where we've seen leaders be genuine Democrats when they're in opposition, but then once they get elected into office, use the same democracy that brought them in office to stifle further democratization in their respective countries, that we have to work against that. That has to be criticized and condemned because we need our leaders to be as committed Democrats as the rest of the population or the majority of the population because it is thanks to those kinds of leaders, the Nelson Mandela's, that Africa did get a facelift to the point where we now can count dozens of countries that are considered totally free. Countries like Ghana, Botswana, Mauritius, South Africa, and a whole other multiplicity of countries that are partly free, but that are working to be freer and better democracies. And so the role of leaders is something that we must underscore in every conversation that we have because of the critical role that leaders play across the African continent. I think that perfectly leads me on to my next question, which is, towards the end of the last decade, which which feels such a long time ago, even though it wasn't, we saw transitions, we saw the departure of numerous long-serving leaders on the continent. And I think what strikes me currently about the moment we found ourselves in right now is that the transitions in some places have stalled. And these long-serving leaders, whilst they may have left office, still retain a level of influence in some cases. Where do you feel the future of this transition is? And do you hope that this decade is one where we are able to see even more leaders who have been long serving in societies that are less democratic, if that's a poignant way to put it, 
begin to allow transitions to begin to allow the Democrats in their societies, as you've mentioned, to take the lead? Well, you're very right in your assessment. And I would dare say that these autocratic leaders, recalcitrant, I call them recalcitrant autocrats, that at some point they're going to realize they have no choice because the demographics are not in their favor. The younger generation of Africans continues to aspire to be governed differently. And while these recalcitrant autocrats can resist and use some instruments of force and coercion to keep people down, ultimately, at some point, because of the sheer strength in numbers, that they're going to be overpowered and will come to the realization that they can govern for eternity. And that ultimately, they're going to have to make space for the voices of the majority of Africans who aspire to be governed democratically to be heard. Uh, This has been a very difficult decade, one has to admit, because the euphoria that we saw in the early 90s when Nelson Mandela came out of jail and apartheid collapsed in South Africa and Namibia got its independence and military rule regimes collapsed across Africa and one-party states collapsed my generation, we saw all of that in the early 90s. And there was a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of euphoria about democracy. Unfortunately, today, I couldn't say the same thing. And some of the flawed elections that we've seen in recent months, the military returning to power in a country like Mali and undercutting a democratically elected president, contested elections in Guinea-Conakry, in Cote d'Ivoire, In Tanzania, the ruling party getting 99% of seats in parliament. These kinds of sorrowful stories, I'm hoping, would be a thing of the past as we roll into the beginning of the next decade. That the youth, and that's where my hope is for Africa, that this youthful population and women and other marginalized groups that are now standing up and asking for their voices to be heard, that they would continue to build synergies that aggregate their efforts to make sure that democracy has not just a rite of passage, but has a home across all of Africa. It's incredibly poignant, once again, that you mentioned youth, because we have the world's youngest continent that is led by the world's oldest leadership. And I feel this counterbalance, and as you mentioned, the demographics, actually factoring against the leaders themselves, years to come, will lead to hopefully changes you've mentioned. And actually, just to end on a message of hope, What is your message to the youth who hope to take lead in their countries in being able to ensure that they can play an effective part in democracy? Well, my my message to the youth is that they have to know that they are the leaders of the moment. I am tired of people saying the youth are the leaders of tomorrow because as we've seen too often in many African countries, the tomorrow never comes. My message to the African youth is that you are the leaders of the moment. Seize the moment. Take advantage of new technologies because your demographics, your generation masterminds the new technology, masters the new technology better than everyone else. You see yourselves as citizens of the world. You aspire to the same liberties and the same freedoms that people enjoy in other hemispheres. Seize the moment, make your voices heard, run for office. Don't be shy about taking the bull by the horns and running for the highest office of the land, for the offices in legislative branches or even in municipalities. Take control of your lives politically. Try to step forward and run things. And we've just saw what happened in Nigeria with the NSARS movement that was spontaneous, but that captured youth frustration, not just with police brutality in Nigeria, but with the whole issue of governance and the inability or their desire to see more engagement between the population and those that govern. So my message to the youth is a reaffirmation that you are our last best hope. The African youth is our last best hope. We count on them and it is for them to step forward and seize the moment. They are the leaders of the moment. And if you take up this challenge, I think Africa of tomorrow will be much, much better than the continent that we currently live in today. 
I think that's a perfect note to end the podcast on. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Christopher, for your words and your insights and your perspectives on electoral systems and democracy in Africa. I wish you well and I thank you so much. Thank you very much, Yusuf. It's been a pleasure being on your program and I look forward to uh, seeing you again soon. Okay, so that was a fascinating interview, Yusuf. Thanks very much. I wonder what are your reflections coming away from that? Because it was a pretty mixed picture that was painted there. That was a really, really good interview. Dr. Christopher's, the breadth of his knowledge was actually really apparent during that chat. In particular, I think his points regarding the democratic backsliding and how we must work to ensure that democracy in Africa is upheld, whilst also providing, of course, the positive where we saw the situation in Malawi and what lessons can be gained from Malawi moving forward. And of course, I'm not only mentioning that because it's a great story, but also because Malawi's judges were awarded the Chatham House Prize 2020 in a centenary year, I must say, which is a really, really perfect example of what African agency, I think, looks like for us as an institute and actually looks like on the continent with regards to African solutions to African problems. Absolutely. And it it was so inspiring to find out more about the story of the Malawi judges as part of the Chatham House Prize, which in my ignorance, I I wasn't aware of until until I read the nomination. And now, Yusuf, you you mentioned at the top that obviously elections and democratic processes are going to be a really large focus for you on on the new podcast from the Africa programme coming out next year. I wondered if you could tell us the sorts of events happening across the African continent that that we should be looking out for in 2021. I mean, obviously, COVID-19 doesn't look like it's going anywhere, but politics continues. And there's a lot that's going to be happening that we should be taking notice of. No, completely. And on the topic of elections and political systems, at current, there are 25 elections scheduled for the African continent in the upcoming year, all of which are incredibly important for the growth and, of course, the process of democracy in a lot of these countries. We also have the commencement of the African Continental Free Trade Area, which will be coming into effect from January 2021. And, of course, with the creation of such a large free trade area, we're hoping to see the creation of much more jobs and an integrated market which will benefit the whole of Africa, not just one or two specific countries. Of course, vaccine politics will play a huge part in 2021 in Africa and making sure that the African continent is able to access vaccines will be a discussion that will be had. Discussions around debt relief, COVID-19 has affected many, many economies at current all over the world, in particular in Africa, where many were growing. So therefore, I think the vaccine and actually debt relief will play huge parts in watching Africa exit the COVID pandemic issues. And of course, we also will be looking into peace and security, which is a key topic on the continent and ensuring that governments, civilians, and of course, institutions are protected against those who would seek to harm and of course, benefit from said harm. A hell of a lot to cover, but it sounds fascinating stuff. Now, Yusuf, this podcast is not all going to be about you, right? So it's also going to be about your colleagues in the Africa program and the issues that that they research and, and that they monitor at the Institute. And we're going to hear from them now. We've got three clips from your colleagues. I just wondered if you could introduce them and let us know what they're going to be talking about. Of course, I can. No, I am very lucky to be amongst really, really talented fellows in the Africa programme and my colleagues, Elizabeth Donnelly, who's the deputy director, Christopher Van Dome and Ahmed Suleiman, who are both research fellows, will be providing snapshots into Africa in 2020 And of course, Africa moving forward in the following areas. Elizabeth will be speaking about elections and political systems. And my colleague Ahmed Suleiman will be speaking about peace and security with current ongoings in the Horn of Africa. And lastly, my colleague Christopher Van Dome will be providing really interesting snapshot into inclusive economic growth in Africa and governance in light of COVID-19 and developments all over the continent. And we're going to hear from Elizabeth, Ahmed and Chris in that order as a kind of closing to this episode. So all that remains for me to say to you listeners is thank you very, very much for joining us and for continuing to listen to Undercurrents throughout this past year. It's been hard for me, at least, to focus on many podcasts. So I'm just very grateful that you that you continue to listen. If you've enjoyed what you have listened to over the past 
months, then I would really appreciate it if you left a review and subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to it now. It really, really helps other people find us. Yusuf, thank you very much for joining me for this episode. It sounds like a really fascinating podcast that you will be launching in January. Could you tell our listeners the best way to sort of keep in touch with the Africa programme before then so that they make sure they take note of the launch? Of course, of course. My first point of call will always be to go on the Chatham House website and to subscribe to our newsletter and subscribe to our alerts. I'd also say follow us on social media. We are, of course, very active on Facebook and Twitter and many of our outputs will be shared there on the daily. Therefore, it's a good opportunity for you to be able to see what the Africa programme is up to and how Africa is framed at Chatham House. Absolutely. Well, we are going to sign off now. Happy holidays to you, wherever you are. I hope that you can spend some time with some family in this strangest of years and maybe get a chance to reflect on better things to come. This is Chatham House signing off for the final episode of Undercurrents. And you are now about to hear from our colleagues in the Africa programme. past few decades, many African countries have taken great strides towards democratisation. This has been so important for the pursuit of greater participation, equality, human development and accountability, things for which democracy provides an enabling environment. With 13 African countries having planned to hold presidential or general elections in 2020, this year is already going to be a test of democratic resilience processes and pillars. Then enter the pandemic and the uncertainties, shocks and stresses that it brought with it. And the test became that much more intense, exposing both the importance and the fragility of democratic gains. Some elections were postponed due to COVID-19 concerns and measures. Elections were delayed in Ethiopia, but when the Tigray region went ahead and held its legislative elections regardless, this contributed to the deterioration of relations with the federal government, part of a series of events that saw an escalation to conflict. Ethiopia will need significant support to deliver credible elections in 2021 and to continue its political transition. West Africa had been a regional frontrunner for upholding constitutional term limits and creating space for multi-party politics and media, the expression of political choice and voice. Worryingly, however, there has been some regression, including in Guinea and Cote d'Ivoire, where incumbent presidents were re-elected for third terms after controversial redrafting of constitutions. Nigeria's Electoral Commission administered two relatively credible state elections, but challenges around vote buying, misinformation, insecurity and political party and electoral reform still need to be addressed ahead of 2023. And there have been growing concerns around security and governance trends in Nigeria, brought prominently into view by the NSARS protests this year. In the Western Sahel, as well as in the Horn of Africa, though there may be political will to further democratisation, Violent extremism and insecurity are significant obstacles. Mali is in a political transition following a military coup in August after months of protests and marred parliamentary elections. Looking elsewhere, Tanzania's elections in October were oppressive and lacked credibility. This year has served as an important reminder of the critical role that citizen observers, grassroots organisers, enlightened leaders and determined individuals in nascent but strengthening institutions play in ensuring that emerging democracies continue on their journey. In the Seychelles, an opposition candidate was elected for the first time in more than four decades, and the country is seeing a smooth transfer of power. In Malawi, constitutional court judges announced the 2019 presidential election due to grave irregularities, upholding the rule of law in the face of significant pressures. The judges were awarded the 2020 Chatham House Prize in recognition of their courage and independence in the defense of democracy. The security context in Africa in 2020 has been marked by complexity and divergence. Positive trends have been seen in the emergence of national peace and reconciliation agreements, such as Sudan's Juba Peace Agreement, alongside processes to implement existing accords, as seen in Mozambique and South Sudan. The Horn of Africa's turbulent security landscape continues to limit the prospects of countries in the region moving beyond decades of cyclical conflict towards greater stability and integration. Ethiopia, Africa's second most populous nation of 115 million people, 
is undergoing a devastating internal conflict in Tigray, less than three years after the emergence of a transition that promised to further peace, institutional reforms, inclusivity and development. A protracted insurgency in Tigray could have repercussions elsewhere in Ethiopia and affect stability in neighbouring countries. It highlights the need for a genuine inclusive dialogue amongst the country's political forces to resolve multi-layered tensions and chart a way forward for institutionalising democratic reforms. Sudan's Juba Peace Agreement, signed in October, was held as a significant step towards ending turbulence in conflict-affected states, including Darfur, South Kordofan and Blue Nile. It lays the foundation for democratic transition and economic reform throughout the country. However, successful implementation of the deal is threatened by the fragility of the civilian-military partnership, widespread insecurity and the lack of resources for implementation, given Sudan's economic crisis and limited international financial support. It will also require sustained cooperation between signatories and further inclusivity, both in terms of grassroots peace-building and reaching out to holdout groups. African Union mediated talks between Egypt, Ethiopia and Sudan to find a peaceful solution to the dispute over the Blue Nile Basin remains stalemated, with trust at a premium. Sustained high-level diplomacy is required to find solutions which can bridge the parties' differences, build confidence and secure the vital cooperation needed for long-term regional stability and progress. Countering Islamist-linked terrorism has increasingly dominated Africa's security agenda, including established networks like Al-Shabaab in Somalia, whose resilience could be buoyed by US troop withdrawals in 2021 and uncertainty around the future of the AU mission. Elsewhere, the continued threat of Boko Haram in the Lake Chad Basin, escalating conflicts in the Sahel, a coup in Mali and Islamic State-affiliated efforts in Mozambique's Cabo Delgado province raise concerns over increased protracted violence and associated humanitarian emergencies. Meanwhile, long-standing violence between nomadic herders and sedentary farmers in West Africa and the Sahel continues to be overlooked. Africa programme research and events have sought to generate a deeper understanding of these complex and sensitive issues, as well as exploring options to address insecurity and support peace processes. COVID-19 has shone a spotlight on the root causes of underlying economic vulnerability that were already hampering some of Africa's biggest economies, such as weak governance, widening inequality and environmental challenges, and many countries have been thrust into recession. Oil-based economies have been particularly badly hit, tourism has been decimated, and years of progress in fighting poverty have been erased. In November, Zambia failed to pay a coupon on its eurobond, becoming the first African sovereign to default during the pandemic. Angola, Equatorial Guinea, Congo-Brazzaville and Chad have all joined IMF programmes. Others shall surely follow. South Africa, the continent's most diversified economy and regional flywheel, has been badly affected and economic decline has accelerated. Throughout the year, the Africa programme hosted a series of webinars with some of the senior political leaders and policymakers who are at the forefront of shaping the nation's response to the pandemic and delivering on transformative growth. Economic governance has been a key research focus for the Africa programme in 2020. We continue to examine the continent's role in global economic governance. Our online audiences listened intently to the candidates for the Director General post at the WTO, Ngozi Okonjo-Iwela, who is now in the final two candidates, and Amina Mohamed. We have closely followed the progress of the African continental free trade area that will come into force in January. At a national level, our world-leading empirical research on social norms and accountable governance in Nigeria continues to provide support to individuals and organisations working to tackle corruption. The chairperson of the Zimbabwe Anti-Corruption Commission outlines the importance of her organisation for national development. And local economic governance has been a focal point for our research on Kenya, which identified practical actions for gender-responsive budgeting and planning. Participants at our meetings spoke with renewed urgency of the need for diversification, business reform programmes, and to address swelling government wage bills. The importance of technological change has been central to discussions of resilience and recovery, particularly as it pertains to informal economic opportunities.
These debates on resilience and recovery have also further elevated issues around environmental protection to be at the core of policy formulation going forward. We have produced insights into sustainable energy, ecosystem protection, emissions reductions and urban planning for climate change adaption. Senior extractive industry figures published on the importance of genuine partnerships with host governments and communities and diversity at board level to understand socio-cultural norms and to properly deliver on environmental, social and governance goals. These issues on sustainable and inclusive economic growth will continue to frame our work into 2021 as we provide expert analysis and facilitate debate amongst our expanding global audience.